vaccine evolution. It's fridge stable, which means we can be much more agile in how we're able to get it to people's workplaces. The new AstraZeneca shot and how it'll be deployed to put out COVID hotspots. BC's ambulance crisis. 100% of us have thought about quitting. One paramedic who believes the system is on the verge of collapse. And temporary bike lanes back in play for Stanley Park. Please reconsider what they want to do. It's totally unfair. Businesses prepared to give the park board a rough ride. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening. Thank you for joining us. Today, new developments that could bring an earlier end to the pandemic restrictions than anyone could have hoped in the fall. More vaccines are coming into the country and a fourth vaccine could be approved in just a matter of days. So health officials are adjusting the immunization rollout plans once again. Aaron MacArthur reports. Thank you and good afternoon. Following the lead of the BC CDC, federal authorities have also approved a delay of any second vaccine dose out to four months. Thursday, several more provinces altered their delivery schedules to match. We expect that our timelines will be reduced overall. We should be able to get every Nova Scotian uh, their first dose by the end of June. While more people will be inoculated sooner, it has created a degree of uncertainty in the public. Definitely the messaging would be simpler if we had one set of data, we had one message and it never changed, but that's not what science does. Changes to vaccine labeling and dosing actually quite common, but it usually happens over the course of decades, not weeks. Company data suggests the vaccine works just as well when it's stored at much warmer temperatures. Health Canada now saying storing in regular freezers for up to two weeks is okay. The increased flexibility may enable a wider distribution of Pfizer and BioNTech vaccines. The vaccine landscape has changed drastically in the last few days. AstraZeneca doses will be available across the country next week. And Health Canada is set to approve a fourth vaccine from Johnson & Johnson, possibly within the next seven days. Moderna has confirmed shipments every two weeks, totaling 1.3 million this month. And Pfizer says its shipments in April will hover around three quarters of a million per week. You know, every Canadian who wants to be vaccinated will ha certainly have the opportunity by the end of September. I think that that's still sort of the, uh, the goal. Canada has lagged behind other G7 nations in getting vaccines distributed. Experts say it will remain a struggle to meet the timelines laid out by overly optimistic governments. But expect spring to bring with it a rapid uptake in the number of people with some immunity to COVID-19. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Dr. Henry says the AstraZeneca vaccine will be deployed in B.C. as soon as it gets here. It's much easier to store and transport, so it will be used first on essential workers in the province's worst COVID hotspots and will not be administered based on age. But as Richard Zussman shows us, it also adds another layer of complexity to B.C.'s mass vaccination plan. It has now arrived, hundreds of thousands of doses of AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine in Canada. No hint, however, on how many are coming here to British Columbia. Way back in December when we said it was changing every day, well, it's changing every day. It was just this week the vaccine developed at Oxford was approved for use in Canada, and the first shipment arriving from India has a catch. Most of it expires in early April. Our concern has always been about the lack of a definitive plan. 
The specific plan for AstraZeneca is coming soon. What we know for now is the vaccine will not be used for those 65 years of age and older. Over the next two weeks, the plan will be to target clusters, especially where workers can't physically distance. Food processing is the highest risk of those industries, and we've had ongoing outbreaks that affect large numbers of workers. Some of these different drivers of the economy, food supply is a really key one, and, and uh, you know we certainly... Uh, you know, see our industry as an essential service. And, and if there's an opportunity to have access, I, you know, I think it would actually benefit all British Columbians. Then the province's immunization team will use an ethical framework to determine which essential workers will receive the shot. And those shots will start in a few weeks time, be it postal workers, police officers, firefighters or truck drivers. If they're seeing data in a particular area where drivers uh, have been involved, uh, we'd be more than happy to work with the carriers and the drivers in that area uh, to find a way to coordinate uh, vaccinations. And then there's teachers. They want to be included in the plan as well, especially in areas that have been hard hit by COVID like Surrey and areas where there have been staffing shortages like Hazleton. One of the ways that we can keep a schools open, and we know how important it is for students to be in school, is to ensure that, that teachers are prioritized in the, within the essential workers. The vaccine providing additional support for those on the front lines, but a logistical nightmare for those determining who goes next. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. And Keith Baldry joins us now with more on where we're seeing growth, Keith, in these active cases and also where there is light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, every week I like to walk everybody through the geographical spread of COVID-19 because every week, every week looks a little different than the previous week. But right now we're seeing a resurgence of a pattern we saw in the fall at the peak of the second wave where Fraser Health Authority has the most uh, daily cases and active cases. So here's the, daily, here's the active case count by a health authority in terms of the growth over the last week. Uh, Fraser, again, by far the most uh, numbers up 250. Vancouver Coastal had been leveling off. That's no longer the case. They're up 163. Uh, Vancouver Island sort of uh, almost even. Where we've seen a real big drop-off is in the interior and the north. That's very reassuring, but Fraser continues to be a concern. Now, those are the active case numbers. I note that the number of active case numbers right now are the highest they've been since Jan mid-January. The number of hospitalizations right now has been the highest since the beginning of the month. And the number of cases in terms of... Uh, of uh, cases, daily case average has been the highest since uh, mid-January as well. Despite all those negative numbers, though, today Dr. Bonnie Henry, I think, put a most positive uh, uh, glance at what we could expect in the summer. We haven't heard her be this optimistic ever in the pandemic. I don't know, maybe I'm too optimistic, but uh, we're going to be in our post-pandemic world by the summer if things continue to go uh, the way that we want them to. We know there's going to be snags, so I, I hesitate to say that. And, but um, you know, I think it was Eisenhower said, no, no plan survives first contact with the enemy, but we are going to do our best and we are going to make sure that uh, uh, young people have that experience. And I think by the summer we're going to be able to be doing a lot more more of those connections that we need. So let's hope so. I think her optimism based almost entirely on the fact that so many of us are going to get vaccinations on a relatively short time period, something we didn't see coming just a few months ago. As long as the supply is secure and it hangs on that. Thanks yeah. very much, Keith. All right, let's take a look at today's COVID-19 numbers for BC. We have 564 new cases. That brings the provincial total to 82,473. 
four more people have died. And that means we have now lost 1,376 people to complications of the virus. 248 people are in hospital. There are 4,743 active cases and nearly 300,000 people have received at least one dose of the vaccine. The B.C. government is now going after the owner of a downtown Vancouver penthouse for all of the money he made from his alleged illegal nightclub. 42-year-old Mo Movasagi was arrested in January after police found about 80 people packed into his 1,100-square-foot apartment, which had menus, tables, and cash registers. Police handed out more than $17,000 in fines. Now the province is using civil forfeiture laws to go after the money and the equipment that was seized that night. I think it certainly sends a, a message uh, to people uh, who are engaged uh, in illegal activity. Uh, you know, there are public health orders that are out there for reason to keep people safe. And at the same time, if you think that ignoring them is just going to get you uh, a ticket, there can be other consequences that flow from your, from your decision. In addition to the civil forfeiture action, Movasagi is facing two charges of failing to comply with the orders of a health officer and unlawfully purchasing grain alcohol. He's scheduled to appear in court later this month. A B.C. paramedic is sounding the alarm about the crisis on the front lines right now that's leading to big delays and gaps in ambulance service. But it's not just the COVID-19 pandemic and the opioid crisis contributing to the emergency. As Jordan Armstrong reports, some in the general public are compounding the problem. I'm fairly certain 100% of us have thought about quitting. Complaints of extreme staffing shortages have been expressed by the union, but we thought you should hear from someone on the front lines, a working lower mainland paramedic. Paramedics are they're tired, they're exhausted, they are beat up, they're injuries, there's mental health, people are dropping off like flies. We'll call him Johnny. For obvious reasons, we're protecting his identity. You won't see how bad the ambulance service is with getting to people that are in emergency situations until you need one. Weekends are particularly challenging. The union claims 32 Metro Vancouver ambulances were out of service last Sunday night. The employer claims it was 17. Still, that's a lot of paramedics off the job. Why? blame injury, exhaustion, and stress, says Johnny. I've been spat at, I've been punched at, I've been kicked, I've been tackled. Other co-workers have had knives pulled on them. He says the non-emergency calls are piling up, adding a public awareness campaign on when and when not to call an ambulance is badly needed. We're going to nonsense calls like uh, I swallowed my toenail to uh, I cut myself with my pen. All this while dealing with two public health emergencies. All this while earning tens of thousands less than other first responders. And when the actual emergency calls happen, Johnny says the responding paramedics often find themselves apologizing. We get to them and they're, they're short with us because we took two hours. And it's reasonable. I mean, I typically will say I'm very sorry that we took this long. It's just, it's very busy. And there's just nothing I can do. The health minister says the concerns are on his radar. I believe I'll be meeting uh, in the very near future with the president of the union to discuss those ongoing issues. The whole health care system's broken. I think everyone knows that. It's just some are more broken than others. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. 
We have some breaking news for you now. The coroner's inquest into the police shooting death of Hudson Brooks has just handed down a verdict and some recommendations. Brooks was 20 years old in July of 2015 when he was seen acting erratically outside of the South Surrey RCMP detachment. Constable Elizabeth Kucherin testified that when she went to investigate what was going on, Brooks, who was not armed, charged her. She fired her gun 12 times. Brooks was hit nine times and died at the scene. Kucherin was originally charged with aggravated assault and assault with a weapon, but those charges were stayed. And at the inquest, the jury ruled Brooks's death a homicide and included the following recommendations, all dealing with police training. To the RCMP, it said increased training frequency of incident management intervention models, specifically focused on communication in regard to tactical considerations when it comes to the use of force. To the Independent Investigations Office of BC, to provide investigative materials and findings to the RCMP for the purpose of developing training solutions. And to the Ministry of Public Safety and Solicitor General, to review current standards of use, training, and to consider new technology for intermediate force options, including conducted energy weapons such as tasers. The jury's findings are not legally binding. I really hope some real change comes from it, but I have my doubts that it will. The use of a gun that was shot nine times when my brother was in need of help and he was met with fear and a gun and nine bullets. There needs to be something better than that. And I think they've said that there needs to be. They've recommended there being different avenues and that's that is very important, but also just the officers themselves need to be able to, oh, they need to be able to handle that situation far, far, far better. It's a debate that could spoil the tranquility in Vancouver's crown jewel. A proposal to bring back temporary bike lanes and limit vehicle traffic in Stanley Park has been introduced by the chair of the park board. We'll take a spin through some of the powerful opinions on that next on the News Hour. It will create real risk to the community. Why Burnaby's fire chief is so concerned about the tank farm on the hill. Coming up on the News Hour. Also, sweet trade. The Canadian soccer fans swapping maple syrup for scarves, making friends around the world later. Right now, though, a major volley today in the battle over the possible closure of one lane of traffic through Stanley Park again this summer to create a dedicated bike lane. A coalition of park businesses, cultural attractions and recreational groups is urging the public to fight against closing a lane, saying the survival of many businesses depends on it. During the off-season, there's a serenity along Stanley Park Drive. Motorists and cyclists with enough room to share the road. Even horse-drawn carriages trot along in harmony. Please reconsider what they want to do. It's totally unfair. A stark contrast to the frustration brought on by flashbacks of last spring and summer. A Vancouver Parks Board motion to bring back a dedicated bike lane. Car-free park! Making a group of Stanley Park businesses downright mad. To restrict car traffic to one lane again is devastating. They say traffic bottlenecks and difficulty accessing parking caused by the bike lane last year drove business already affected by the pandemic further into the ground. And after that fiasco, it's hard to imagine that it can happen again. The man raising the motion on March 8th says this is just part of a larger plan that's looking at reducing vehicle traffic in Stanley Park. 
We're going to be able to have more people enjoying the park safely. We're going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and we're actually going to create a better overall situation in Stanley Park. But speaking to avid cyclists, some choose cars over casual riders. It was more chaotic with the cyclists in here than it was having with cars in here. I can see for families it would be more beneficial. Then there's Michelle Edwardson's pup Finley, who'd rather be cruising in a backpack on the seawall than on a dedicated bike lane. It's safer for the for everybody who's leisurely biking to go on the seawall. The opinion of some drivers, the last thing area businesses and attractions want to hear. It's very busy at that time and it would deter me if it was only one lane. Despite cries over a lack of accessibility and business, Dumont says there are plenty of ways to get around. It's okay to go slowly and it's okay to take your time and there will be plenty of parking. With growing anger over the plan to get the bike lane in use as soon as crews and weather permit, the serenity in Stanley Park might soon be out of season. John Hua, Global News. Up ahead, solving one of the big problems with face masks. So far, we received really good feedback about it. A new mask design they hope everyone will be talking about very soon. But first, a large-scale study of COVID transmission in schools. Will it finally end the debate over mandatory masks in the classroom? Traffic is pretty much eased off over here on Highway 1 eastbound, right from the Cassiar Tunnel through the Burnaby Lake stretch and into Coquitlam after clearing earlier problems. Is buying a home still possible? A CIBC mortgage advisor will show you how to make your ambition real. Plus, get up to $3,000 cash back. Conditions apply. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. A major new B.C. study is hoping to settle the question of just how safe our schools are during the pandemic. Researchers from B.C. Children's Hospital and UBC are working with the Vancouver School District to test school staff. Linda Aylesworth now on what they're hoping to find. The pandemic may seem like it's been going on forever, but from a scientific point of view, it's still very new. So while current evidence concludes that there is low transmission of the SARS-CoV-2 virus in schools... A lot of what we know is based on, um, I would say, anecdotal data. And we don't have a large-scale data to measure that exposure. Which is why Dr. Pascal Lavoie is leading a study out of BC Children's Hospital to determine the transmission rate of the COVID virus in the Vancouver School District. 2,500 staff who work directly with students will be enrolled, along with 500 who do not have exposure to students. And we're hoping to compare these two groups uh, to, to understand how much of the exposure is coming from within the school setting. To measure that, they'll all undergo serology or antibody blood tests to determine if they've been exposed to the virus at some point. As for the students... So public health is already doing the testing in children. These are viral testing or uh, gargle uh, tests. Since many children have no symptoms when they're infected, the gargle test will let researchers know if they're carrying the virus. We are hoping that to get this information in the next couple of weeks so we can act really fast on whatever action needs to be taken. But this information is before everything else is going to provide information to understand what's happening. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. A pilot project testing the effectiveness of copper to kill bacteria, bacteria on high-touch areas of buses and SkyTrain has been so successful, 
it's being expanded. Back in November, a copper coating was installed on handles and grab bars on two buses and two SkyTrain cars. Since then, a series of lab tests has shown the copper kills up to 99.9% of all bacteria within one hour. And it's durable enough to stand up to daily transit ridership. Now TransLink and Tech Resources are launching a second phase of the testing, installing the copper barriers on more train cars and buses, performing a new series of tests and asking for public feedback. Well, if there is one big takeaway from the widespread use of face masks, it's how much we rely on facial gestures during in-person conversations. Now a leading expert from UBC's School of Audiology and Speech Sciences has some tips on how to better communicate while keeping your mask on. Ted Chernecki reports. COVID's brought new meaning to that old phrase, the masked wonder. As in, I wonder what he or she just said. With half one's facial expressions masked, a UBC audiologist says it's time to up your eyebrow game. So move your eyes, move your eyebrows. I'm lucky I can move one eyebrow at a time, so I can indicate I'm asking a question. If I'm asking a question, raise an eyebrow. Um, if I'm smiling, big smile, um, my eyes will crinkle up a bit as well. Um, I can nod, I can bob my head, I can uh, turn it to the side. And learn from the French, gesticulate, move those arms and hands, speak up and slow down. Not too much, but enough to be understood. In the time of COVID, trying to communicate just basic needs at a grocery store, for example, can be exhausting. And if that's difficult and challenging, we may not have effort left over for interaction. Things like, how's your day going? And that's the part that I think we really need right now. As tough a time as you might be having, consider the deaf and hard of hearing. When you're wearing these uh, regular masks right now, it's you know really hard to see any signs of visual cues of someone's face. Lip reading and other facial cues are huge in the hearing impaired world. So over at the Wavefront Center in Vancouver, they've come up with a new clear mask. At about $30, they're sold out, but with a new improved version coming with a larger replaceable filter. And the filter itself is ASTM level one. So in that sense, it's clearly accessible, it's reusable, it's got the anti-fog solution on there applied as well, so there's no fogging when you talk. But will it lead to a greater understanding of that being said? You be the judge. It just warms my heart that people are paying attention to this, because, you know, being deaf and hard of hearing myself, I have received a lot of barriers, and I've gone through lots of barriers trying to listen. So I just miss reading lips, I miss seeing facial expressions, and hopefully more people will adopt this. Ted Chernacki, Global News. Definitely missing faces, full faces. Out. Soon. Coming up, a glimmer of hope for Air Canada customers with cancelled trips. The airline might be ready to refund, but there's a catch. Also tonight, Burnaby's Tank Farm and why some believe it's a ticking time bomb with the Trans Mountain expansion going ahead. Good evening. Counterflow is out at the Massey Tunnel. No delays north or south. Watch out for overnight road work, though. It's south of the tunnel on Highway 99 near Ladner Trunk Road in the right lane. Time to renew your home insurance. Switch to BCAA for local knowledge, customized coverage, and valuable ways to save. Visit BCAA.com. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center.
Air Canada has agreed to refund passengers who had their flights canceled or postponed during the pandemic. As Global's Sean O'Shea reports, the refunds are a condition of a potential bailout package from the federal government. I just like to have my refund back. Terry Horner Kiros is still waiting for a $1,000 Air Canada refund for a flight she bought for her sister that couldn't get used. It's been a challenge. My experience through Air Canada hasn't been very pleasant. Starting last March, when Air Canada cancelled flights because of the pandemic, the airline began offering travellers credits instead of refunds. It's been a source of frustration for flyers. I'm not the only one that's in a predicament here. There are many thousands of people, consumers, who are being robbed. That's my term. But those waiting for refunds may get them after all, according to the union representing thousands of airline workers. Air Canada and WestJet have been negotiating a financial aid package with the federal government since November. Refunds are said to be a condition of any government support. Yeah, I spoke directly with Air Canada, so I know that they made that commitment quite a while ago. Um, I've had many discussions with the federal government as well about getting this thing done. WestJet voluntarily offered refunds last October, not Air Canada. The very idea that airlines can tell the government we are not going to comply with the law unless you give us some money reinforces and rewards businesses that disobey the law. Passenger rights advocate Gabor Lukash says, pandemic or not, Air Canada is obligated to give refunds. Compliance with the law cannot and should not be a bargaining chip. Air Canada and the federal government are still negotiating and won't confirm that refunds are part of the deal. My sister is an elderly person and we don't know when she was going to travel. People like Terry Horner-Kiros are crossing their fingers hoping to get their money back. Just couldn't give me a, a refund and I find that absolutely um, unbelievable. Sean O'Shea, Global News, Toronto. Less than three months after a Ladner theft made headlines, Delta police have made an arrest in the case. On December 15th, a thief got into an underground parkade and stole a custom-made wheelchair hoist. That hoist had allowed the owner to enable him to go fishing. It was later found stripped and damaged in a Surrey alley. A suspect was identified and arrested late last month. Police say a number of items were seized as evidence. Charges are being recommended to Crown for consideration. The city of Burnaby is demanding Trans Mountain step up to ensure the safety of people living and working in the area where its pipeline ends. As Paul Johnson reports, they say their fire department needs millions of dollars of upgrades and a new fire station in order to fight any fire that might break out in the huge Burnaby Mountain tank farm. For these protesters Thursday morning, Trying to block work on the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion is a matter of faith. This was a coalition of spiritual groups with one man putting his convictions on the line, climbing the fence and getting arrested. There is a need for equipment and infrastructure. But then just across town, a handful of leaders argue that the expansion also amounts to a matter of fairness. This project, if it goes forward in the design that is proposed, it will create real risk to the community. Chief Chris Bocock says the magnitude of the risk means there should be an entirely new fire hall, purpose-built to handle any fire at Trans Mountain's expanded Burnaby Mountain storage facility. Building and running a new fire hall will cost in the tens of millions 
That's a bill they say should go to Trans Mountain, not the taxpayers of Burnaby. Yet there has been utter silence when it comes to putting in place important safety precautions that will keep the citizens of Burnaby protected. Trans Mountain, which is owned by the federal government, told Global News that in their 65 years of doing business in Burnaby, they've never had a tank farm fire. But as to whether they'll foot the bill for the new fire hall that the fire chief is asking for, they would only say they welcome the opportunity to engage with the city of Burnaby. Back on the front lines of the protest movement, there's a sense that local concerns are being steamrolled by Ottawa's desire to pump more oil to the coast. And no sign that they're likely to stand down anytime soon. Most of us are completely determined to stop this damn pipeline. In Burnaby, Paul Johnson, Global News. For the second day in a row, Victoria's Beacon Hill Park is the scene of a deadly incident. Just after 8 a.m., the body of a 60-year-old man was found inside a burning camper van just meters from where another man was found dead yesterday morning. As Kylie Stanton reports, both deaths happened within sight of the tent city that sprung up in Victoria's largest and most popular park. Fire crews battled the flames billowing out of this van, the place one man had called home for more than a year. He was really, really trying hard to get you know, his life back in order. 60-year-old Mike Lockhart was inside the vehicle when it caught fire Thursday morning. He didn't survive. The news quickly made its way to his family, now trying to come to grips with the loss. We were really building up our relationship again, mending fences from, for years. <laughs> This is the second death in as many days in Victoria's Beacon Hill Park. On Wednesday, a woman was found unresponsive near a curb on Dallas Road. Despite CPR being performed, she was pronounced dead. It's just sad to see that uh, two days in a row that we've had uh, such a tragic outcome and two people had to lose their, lose their lives in, in such a beautiful park that we have. Since the onset of the pandemic, Beacon Hill Park has become home to a growing tent city, as well as long-term vehicles. They've been allowed to stay temporarily because of a lack of shelter spaces currently available. There is a deadline of March 31st to offer housing to everyone here, but many fear more lives will be lost. Nobody knows what's going to happen. It's just one of those situations. Yeah, it's very emotional. I mean, obviously, it's, it's, it's never an easy thing. The investigation into these latest incidents are still in the very early stages. Police are asking anyone with information to come forward. We always approach uh, incidents like this and always look at you know, prevention and, and did this have to occur? And, and, and those are certainly questions that we'll be asking and, and perhaps there'll be more light shed on uh, the circumstances. And while that may keep this from happening again, it's too late for Lockhart, who only had better days ahead. I bet you this summer would have been the summer he would have been able to clean up his act, get a place, not live here. But when your time's up, your time's up. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. In Health Matters tonight, Prince Philip has undergone a successful heart procedure. Buckingham Palace made that announcement today. The 99-year-old needed treatment for a pre-existing heart condition. The palace says he will remain in hospital for a number of days for rest and recuperation. The prince was admitted to hospital more than two weeks ago after feeling unwell because of an infection. Still ahead, a truly Canadian trade. Albania, this was the first one that I got actually. 
Swede success for a young man making new friends with maple syrup. And in sports, how the Canucks are going to contend with one of the hottest teams in hockey. When it comes time to get the shot, we know that Christy has the perfect yeah. top for it. That's what you're going to wear, right? you got to move the hair up so we can see the... Oh, yeah, sorry. There you go. Yeah. My vaccine talk. There will be no rolling up the sleeve. Just pull, the, Just pull it down a bit. Ah, oh, very funny, very funny. All right, you guys, beautiful colors today, just like my sweater, wouldn't you say? Uh, this morning during sunrise, you know what they say, though, red skies in the morning, sailors warning, and that was certainly the case as the rainfall pushed in through the afternoon hours. But thank you to everyone who sent us gorgeous photos all across the lower mainland. Here's the front that is moving across our region right now, so heavy at times through the overnight period. We'll see windy conditions as well, but for our region, gusts uh, 30 to maybe 50 below warning criteria. But more moisture is the key here that I wanted to show you by the satellite image. So it's going to be on and off. These are the warnings that are in place. North Central Coast as well as the outer coast of Vancouver Island. Gusts in that 100 to 110 kilometer an hour mark. Now, Greater Victoria and Southern Gulf Islands also under a wind warning for mainly tomorrow morning. Gusts up to about 70. So just reaching warning criteria. But we could see some delays in the ferries. So be aware of that and check in with them. BC Ferries tomorrow morning. This is tomorrow morning where we'll see periods of rain heavy at times through the morning hours along with the gusty conditions and then throughout the day it begins to lighten up still mainly cloudy and we'll see rain on and off uh, but we certainly will see some breaks in the action we may even see some breaks in the blue sky or in the clouds here and there uh, but not a lot probably uh, so keep your rain jacket handy double digit one digits once again in through the interior regions and for our region there's the rainfall on and off throughout the day and we will see that on and off through Saturday and Sunday as well it's not until Monday that we finally catch a bit of a break and maybe a couple of days of beautiful weather. And there's one last shot of today's sunrise. Thank you to Monica for that one from Tawasson. That is beautiful. So many great pics on social media wow. of that sunrise. Amazing. Thanks, Christy. All right, here's Squire now with a look ahead to sports. Well, uh, late breaking news. Uh, actually, Elias Pedersen left practice today. He's not in the warm-up tonight. Mm. So it doesn't look like he's going to play against the Maple Leafs. And this summer, Toronto could be partying like it's 1967. The Leafs are number one in the NHL, and they are here tonight. You know, you don't have to look any further than their record and their lineup. They're a good team. And the Canucks would know the way Toronto beat them last month. This is the Leafs' first visit to Vancouver this year, although no fans with Leafs jerseys will be allowed in. Actually, no fans, period. (laughs) All right. Good point. Also ahead, swapping syrup for scarves. How an Ontario teenager is connecting with people in a pandemic world. One positive for this pandemic is we don't have to see the Leafs jerseys downtown tonight. (laughs) There's none. Well, there might be some, but they're not in the stadium at least. Well, think about it this way. When the Leafs and Canucks play in normal times, either team scores. You don't really know who the home team is. Same thing tonight. It'll yeah. sound exactly the same, That's although I true. guess they'll hit a horn when the Canucks score. Uh, it looks like Elias Pettersson won't be able to play this evening against the Maple Leafs. He left practice early, and when asked about it, Travis Green wouldn't say one way or the other what was wrong, uh, but he was not out for pregame warm-ups. Um, so it doesn't look like he'll be able to go. Forward Mark Michaelis, though, will get in the lineup for Vancouver, and this will be his first NHL game. Last year he was playing college hockey. He is from Germany. Uh, facing the Leafs without your best player is daunting, obviously. Actually, even facing them with your best player is pretty tough this year. And Barry has a preview. 
Yeah, the numbers do not stack up well for the Canucks against the Leafs. Toronto leads the NHL with 38 points. That's 18 more than Vancouver. And the Leafs are coming off their most dominant stretch of the season. They swept the Oilers three straight, outscored them 13-1, to and held Connor McDavid pointless. And in the three games against the Canucks, Toronto's won all three of them, outscoring Vancouver 15-5. to So yes, the Canucks will have to play their best game tonight to have any chance to get a win. You can see in their game they're playing strong defensive hockey, but they're also a highly skilled team that has the puck a lot, which always uh, helps you helps your defensive game when you have the puck and you're not defending tired. Marner puts a slot tip. Tavares scores! The Leafs lead the NHL with 87 goals scored, but they know to make a long playoff run, they have to be better defensively. And they've delivered on that with the fourth best goals against average in the league. In the past week alone, they've posted two shutouts and have allowed just two goals in their past four games. And we made it very clear about what we wanted to be about as a team. And then we were going to hold each other to that and, and hold ourselves uh, to that standard. And uh, the guys have done, you know, very well with it. I think it's uh, it's, it's a credit to um, just how focused our team is, uh, you know, for, for this season. I think just overall our whole team, just uh, the way we've grown through the start of the season, um, just getting better every day, um, making sure we're keeping each other accountable. It's uh, It's been something that... Uh, we're trying to work on every day, and it's, uh, it's, it's been getting better. We know we can play with anyone on any any given night, and there's definitely a belief in the room that we can do that. I don't think anyone's worried about that. Um, we just got to try to do it as many games as we can and try to string some games along. Well, the Canucks must obviously like a challenge. The last three teams they've met have been the hottest teams in the division at the time. The Oilers had won nine of their last 11 when they met the Canucks. Winnipeg had won five of six. And now the Leafs have won seven of eight. So the Canucks aren't doing it the easy way. They'll have to cool off the red-hot Leafs tonight at Rogers. Barry DeLay, Global Sports. Well, their last game, of course, was against Winnipeg, who tonight are in Montreal taking on the Habs, who are going reverse retro. And I don't like it, but that's just me. Anyway, Tyler Toffoli gets this one bounced off of him to tie the game 2-2. Winnipeg had been up 2-0. Now, Winnipeg takes the lead back. Paul Stastny. But with 90 seconds left, Jonathan Drouin knocks in a loose puck. And this is not what the Canucks want to see. Teams going to overtime. Consolation points hurt when you're trying to chase down a playoff spot. I know it's uh, almost out of reach for Vancouver, but you never know. Anyway, this is how it ends. Pierre-Luc Dubois scores the winner in OT for the Jets, but Montreal gets one. In Russia, the KHL has started its playoffs, and St. Petersburg is up 2-0 in its series with Dynamo Minsk. Now, St. Petersburg is where Canucks top prospect Fedsili Podkolzin plays, and he's had a goal in each game. In fact, we're going to show you both of his goals. This is game number one. Pretty sweet wrist shot from Podkolzin right there. Deserves another look. He doesn't play a ton for this team, but it was good to see him today play late in the game when they were trying to protect the one-goal lead with a net empty, and it is Pod Colson who scores that empty net goal. And maybe you'll see him with the Canucks before this season is over. The BCHL is working with the government still to try and figure out if they can get everything in place to have a short season. Uh, it should be noted, though, there is still a meeting scheduled for tomorrow for all the BCHL owners to vote on whether to continue to pursue a short season or cancel it altogether if nothing is resolved by then. 
Freddie Montero has gone back to Seattle and signed a one-year contract with some option years with the Sounders. Played three seasons with Vancouver, 2017, 19, and 20. It was a move that made sense for Montero. His family is in Seattle. He owns a coffee shop there as well. So now he can do both his jobs in one city. He scored 26 goals for the Whitecaps. So he definitely gave them their money's worth. All right, Toronto Raptors still having to play shorthanded because of COVID issues taking on the Celtics. They gave it another good run, but just not enough. Chris Boucher scored 16 in the first half, 30 altogether. Oh, that's a big jam from Jason Tatum. And the uh, Celtics win it by seven as the Raptors drop two games below 500. First round of the Arnold Palmer. It represents which is also lemonade and iced tea together. Arnold Palmer. Uh, Rory McIlroy. That putt crossed a county line and went in from 56 feet away. Canadian Corey Connors on the uh, par 5 16th. This one, a couple of yards away. Made the eagle putt, six under through his first seven holes. He started on the back nine, did make a bogey to drop the five under, but got it back thanks to this putt from 32 feet away in the third. Then at the six, from 85 yards away, knocks it to within five feet, and that would end up being a birdie. Fired a six under 66, tied with McElroy for the lead. Nick Taylor won over at 73, Adam Hadwin. Bit of a tough day, seven over 79. There you go. Looks awfully nice down there. Thanks, Thanks Squire. All right, here's Jay Durant now, the preview of Global News at 11. Thank you, Chris. We'll have more reaction from Hudson Brooks's family to the jury's recommendations at a coroner's inquest. Plus, a warrant has been issued for the arrest of a B.C. man charged with dangerous driving for allegedly sleeping behind the wheel of a speeding Tesla in Alberta last summer. And COVID transmission continues to slow in Whistler ahead of spring break after a spike in cases earlier this year. We'll have those stories and a lot more tonight at 11. Sounds good. Thanks, Jay. Up next, an Ontario soccer fan making some sweet trades around the world. Well, pandemic life can be isolating, to say the least, but a young Ontario man is proving that with a dose of creativity, it doesn't have to be. That's right. As Global's Aaron Streck reports, bottles of good old Canadian maple syrup are going a long way to help him expand his social circle internationally. Albania, this was the first one that I got, actually. He's not traveling right now, yet Daniel Robertson's collection of international football scarves has expanded over the past few months. I noticed that no matter the country or the club from uh, different places in the world, that they all had scarves in common. The 19-year-old came up with a way to bring the beautiful game to him. And it all started with a Reddit post. Hey guys, my name is Daniel. I'm from Canada and uh, I'm doing this project and you have a chance to get some maple syrup. And that definitely got a lot of attention when uh, people hear the word maple syrup around from a Canadian. <laughs> Robertson started trading bottles 
bottles of the iconic Canadian condiment in exchange for football scarves from people around the world. I was walking to the mailbox like every day. I was sometimes I'd open it and there'd be like like seven in there and I'd be like, oh my goodness, like what is going on? What have I started? I think it's a fair trade because I don't know if uh, in my life I will ever go to Canada. That's Angelo Chan. He's in Singapore. He sent Robertson a Tampanese Rovers scarf. In exchange, he not only got a bottle of syrup, he also got a Toronto FC scarf. I have gotten the maple syrup. I used it as well, um, so my parents enjoyed it as well. Robertson's mother is amazed by the response. They have this in common, this love of soccer or football, and uh, just that they can come together and using social media and, and help each other out. But it's about more than just the scarves for the team. Little pennants. Pen it's allowed him to meet new people, learn about different cultures, and he's keeping track of his journey using a map. I have over 60 countries now. From so Scotland, I for example, I have like seven different scarves from different teams. Germany, they, they sent me so many different club scarves. So I have around, uh, I want to say around 133, 135, somewhere around there. I just got a few yesterday, so I got to add it up and see what I'm at. Daniel Robertson isn't done. He hopes to collect more football scarves in exchange for maple syrup to completely fill the map in the coming months. And one day he hopes to travel to most of these destinations to catch a game. Aaron Strack, Global News. That's so cool. That yeah. is uh, a lot of traveling. <laughs> well, one day. One day. It's all pent up right now. We're just all <laughs> waiting for the gates to reopen and get out there. That's true. All right, last uh, look at weather before we go. Christy? So from a stretch of dry weather to a stretch of wet weather, we'll see it on and off for the next couple of days. Not a soaker necessarily. Certainly it will be overnight and early tomorrow morning, but rain on and off throughout our Friday and our Saturday. It's Monday, everyone. If you work on the weekends, you're one of the lucky ones. Oh, <laughs> Although just a little sunshine on Saturday, I'll take it. Yeah, it's possible. It pops out a little. <laughs> all right, thanks very much, Christy. And thank you all for watching. Have a great night. Good night, all.